Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gostola, one of your hosts, and I'm here to introduce the upcoming interview that we have for you. Our guest this week is Mohamed Morandi, who is a professor of literature and Orientalism at Tehran University. We had to go back and make some changes to the episode because we recorded in the morning on January 9th. And we asked Mohammed about the allegations that were in the media about the Ukrainian airliner and the fact that the United States and Western intelligence agencies were saying that a missile fired by Iran had accidentally hit this airliner and caused it to crash, killing 176 people. This tragedy was something that we speculated about, and so we needed to go back and remove that now that we know who was responsible. So it's important to add to our show that Iran has come out, apologized, offered condolences, and that in fact... What was said by officials from Iran is markedly different from a prior disaster, a similar disaster that occurred back in the late 1980s. I'm talking about Iran Air 655. George H.W. Bush, who was president, uh, knew that this airliner had been shot down by U.S. military forces he knew that nearly 300 Iranians had died. He said, I won't apologize for the United States. I don't care what the facts are. And that contrasts markedly from what we're seeing from Iran, which has agreed to cooperate with all investigations, offered condolences, plans to work with affected nations, and uh, I believe right this wrong. At the moment, it seems like they really feel that this was a tragedy that, sh that that did not need to happen. When you look at the outcome and what transpired, I think it's crucial to make the point that the, that missile that hit the Ukraine airliner would not have been fired if, let's just say, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had not had such a bloodlust for taking out Qasim Soleimani, the Iran general who was targeted in an assassination by the Trump administration. That really set off this chain of events that led to the tragic deaths of those 176 people. So, it's going to start. It's awkward the way we get into the interview. Just know that what Mohammed is talking about relates to the Ukrainian airliner and also the missiles that were fired in response to the Qasim Soleimani assassination. Enjoy the interview. What is clear to me in either case is that the Americans are trying to cover uh, what happened in Iraq, perhaps to a degree, uh, by uh, making this the number one news. First of all, it's, it's psychological warfare against Iran. Um, that's being carried out. It's, they're trying to create a sense of fear that you know Iran is unsafe. But also, I think um, the Iranian strikes on the American base 
was very significant, even though they played it down, and that every single Iranian missile passed through the U.S. air defense systems uh, successfully. The Americans failed to down a single missile. And this was when they were, you know, prepared for some sort of Iranian strike. So they were on alert. Then from the satellite photos, we know that all the missile missiles struck the targets. They, none of them fell into fields or, you know, they, they all either hit hangars or buildings. There was, they, they hit something and it was clear that that was what they were supposed to hit. So the Iranians basically sent the message to the Americans that, you know, we can destroy your helicopters and your, and your drones and your uh, high-tech weapons with ease. You can't stop us. And therefore, all your military bases in the whole region are vulnerable. And also those countries who provide the United States with these bases, like the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, the Iranians have told them that if there is an escalation, you will be seen as adversaries because you're helping the Americans. And if the Iranians with this cap these capabilities, and Iran has many thousands of missiles and huge numbers of drones, if Iran goes after Emirati and Saudi targets, I think the Emirates wouldn't last more than a couple of days. And Saudi Arabia would be completely devastated very quickly because it is completely dependent on oil and all, all, all their key assets are right alongside the Persian Gulf, almost all their key assets. So I think that these countries felt very vulnerable. They felt that the Americans couldn't protect them because the Americans couldn't protect themselves. And the Americans know that they can't be protected because these missiles went through the defenses and hit their targets inside an American base when they were prepared for some sort of attack. I think that's the real story in all this, and that the U.S. military, despite all these expenditures, is, um, is incapable of uh, bringing down uh, in, incoming missiles. And these are not even Iran's more advanced missiles. Yeah, I think that everything you just described, I mean, Iran played this all very wisely. Um, and was so restrained, but despite being restrained, I mean, really like, it was like a chess game. Um, and I don't, I hate using cliches like that, but it really, really was like, the US was like cornered. And it was like, you're, you, you have nothing, you can't play anything else. I mean, there is the fact that Trump is crazy and kind of unpredictable. Uh, but at the end of the day, I was really, I mean, the fact that, that the UAE and Saudi Arabia we're like, please, like, we need to de-escalate this. Just demonstrates how capable Iran is to fight a war. I mean, this is, the, when is the last time, seriously, when is the last time a country with a conventional military, re, like, responded to American aggression and responded in a way that made it impossible for the U.S. to continue escalating? That's right, but that's not something you'll hear in the American media because um, it's it's not in their interest to yeah they the media did the media it was really interesting to watch the U.S. media really tried to spin it as Iran is too weak to hit back by killing Americans like they kept they kept um, emphasizing Iran went out of their way not to kill Americans because they know that if they do they'll be hit back harder and it's like you're totally missing the point.
<laughs> like totally exactly. missing the point. <laughs> I mean, killing killing four or five American soldiers or 10, 20 American soldiers is um, is strategically speaking, uh, humanitarian issues aside, mm -hmm. is much less important than the fact that they destroyed what was in those buildings and what was in those hangars and and um, you know the, the the damage that they caused. But but also I think what the Iranians did is that like the nuclear deal, when Trump left the deal, the Iranians remained in the deal in order to put the United States in a bad position. So the international community sees Trump as the person who's causing the trouble. In the case of this crisis, again, the Iranians did the same thing. The American military carried out an act of war against Iran and Iraq because they murdered a senior Iranian war hero as well as a senior Iraqi war hero at that Baghdad International Airport. Both are the key people responsible for defeating ISIS. And then in response, Iran destroyed American weaponry, but didn't kill American soldiers. So sort of like the, the nuclear deal, the Iranians showed the international community that Trump is immoral, uh, he's, he's killing people, he's creating crisis, but the Iranians are more, much more measured in their counter response. And of course, this is something that doesn't make sense in the United States much of Europe because Iranians are crazy, they're mullahs, they're evil, they're monsters, they're corrupt, they're, they want to rule the world, they want to kill everyone, they hate Jews, they hate Christians, they hate everyone, all that sort of nonsense that we constantly hear. So when I say this sort of thing to many, not everyone, but to many Europeans or Americans, they sort of look at me as if, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from Mars. <laughs> but I think much of the rest of the world sees things very differently than in the United States. Yeah. And, you know, I would even say that, like, even the United States, um, even U.S. officials see things differently than the media, um, particularly those in the military. They can sometimes be a little less, um, a little less, like, deranged about what happens with other countries. Uh, because, like, I, I know a couple of years ago, even Stanley McChrystal, there was like a there was like a quote for a soundbite from him talking about Qasem Soleimani being this, um, he's just like a military general who really loves his country. That's like something you would never hear from anyone in the media. I mean, the way this man, the way that he was talked about the last several weeks, obviously you have a much more, you have a much better understanding than I do because you actually live in Iran, you're Iranian. But as I mean, I live in the Middle East. Um, and so that definitely gives me a lot more understanding of how this man is viewed. And just to see somebody who was on the front line of fighting ISIS and who helped organize not just the Iranian fight against ISIS, but the fight against ISIS in Syria and Iraq. Um, and, you know, he plays the, he played this role in helping to organize, which is why he was actually hated by the Americans, helping to organize local resistance organizations that across the region that, you know, challenge American, Saudi and Israeli hegemony. Um, but to see him discussed as like this evil person just made no sense to me uh, at all, like I, I, at all. But it's just interesting because some military people get it. But like the American media and idiots like Mike Pompeo don't. Um, Mike, Mike, Mike Pompeo knows exactly. You think so? You think he, no, he doesn't think believe what he's saying? I think he knows very well that the United States was deeply involved in the creation of ISIS. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's impossible for them not to know these things. Ordinary Americans don't know. The media won't say it. 
but we are, you know, those of us who are in the region, we 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 know what role the Americans, the Saudi had, just like in Afghanistan, the role that they had in Syria and creating Al Qaeda and 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 Al Qaeda affiliates and and ISIS and creating these monsters. Uh, you know, the, the Defense Intelligence Agency document of 2012, Hillary Clinton's emails that WikiLeaks uh, revealed, you know, probably one reason why Assange is uh, in prison. Uh, you know, things like um, Biden's uh, speech at Harvard in 2014, where they all admit that U.S. allies helped create these monsters <laughs> and Americans allowed that to happen. And According to General Michael Flynn, the famous General Michael Flynn, the United States took a willful decision. He was the head of the U.S. intelligence agency at that time, and uh, which in that agency said that from almost the beginning, it was the extremists who were the dominant fighting force in Syria, and uh, that U.S. allies wanted to create a Salafist principality between Syria and Iraq. Mm -hmm. General Flynn said that uh, you, the U.S. took a willful decision to support this. And, of course, that principality turned out to be ISIS. So we in the region know who, how ISIS came about and how al-Qaeda came about and who supported them and who supports them now. And but, who fought them and who fought them. Exactly. And if it <laughs> wasn't for General Soleimani, Syria would have fallen. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't for him, Syria would have fallen. And if Syria had fallen, Baghdad would have fallen. And Baghdad almost fell anyway, but he went, he went to the rescue. In fact, Iran held back ISIS and started pushing them back, of course, alongside the Syrian Arab army, uh, which, you know, they, they had the bulk of the, uh, the casualties, the, the bulk of the casualties. <laughs> if it wasn't for the Iranians coming to their aid in Hezbollah, it would, they would have collapsed. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had brought in tens of thousands of fanatical foreign fighters. Uh, but, um, but the the irony is that um, if it wasn't for him, both Baghdad and Damascus would be um, flying black flags today, mm -hmm. and uh, other country, perhaps other countries. Not just, I mean, I didn't even. I mean, uh, Soleimani was also behind the strategy to uh, arm the Peshmerga to a certain degree to fight ISIS. Like it wasn't even just Syria and Baghdad; it was also. You know, the autonomous Kurdistan zone or whatever they call it of northern Iraq. Yes. <laughs> but that, of course, I, the reason why I didn't mention it is that it is a part of Iraq. But Erbil was also on the verge of falling, which right. is a Kurdish area. And, and Barazani called him and said, we need your help. And he said, give me a couple of days. And he said, no, if you don't come right now, the city's gone. So yeah. they flew in that very night. So Baghdad, Arabil, the Iranian armed forces played a key role. And um, so the General Soleimani was, you know, the person in charge of the defense of Baghdad, literally. So the Americans and Trump, by the way, admits this. And, you know, once he said, it. he said that Obama created ISIS. And once he said that it's the Iranians and the Russians that are fighting ISIS. And of course, General Soleimani, this is what I was going to say a couple of minutes ago. General Soleimani went to, when he, you know, they began to push back ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the other groups, he went to Moscow and convinced President Putin to send in uh, his uh, air force. And he promised to commit more troops on the ground in order to turn the tide. And that's basically what happened. Yeah, and Americans are so, especially the American journalists, are so de delusional about this. Like, their interpretation of all of this is that Soleimani was responsible 
for killing this beautiful movement for freedom should have taken over the Middle East. Like, it's unbelievable. Go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say that, and, you know, the Iranians and Hezbollah only came into the fray in 2013. Right. Two years after this whole, uh, this whole, you know, these battles and these, this conflict began in Syria. And it was only after tens of thousands of foreign fighters had already been brought into the country that Iran got involved militarily or and Hezbollah and allies. But yes, exactly. I mean, it's obvious that the more that, you know, they, they say, you know, the Iranians kept the, uh, the monstrous regime. <laughs> and, you know, for me, the question is, A, which is worse, the current government in Syria or uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda? I think there's no... Uh, there's no argument. Although the Americans would like to say in the beginning it was different, but that's not true. The Defense Intelligence Agency document of 2012 says that from early on it was these dominant forces, that mm -hmm. the dominant forces were these extremists. It's, their, oh, it's the U.S. Intelligence Agency, which is the most important and biggest military intelligence organization in the world, mm -hmm. the Pentagon. So, and then, in addition to that, um, the, the, you know, who is the real monster in Syria? Those who supported these extremists or those who supported the Syrian government? I mean, if one is to say Assad is a monster, then I think Obama, Obama is a much greater monster. It was kind of sad, uh, because Soleimani was like this great, this bigger figure, but, um, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, who is the commander of the PMF, who was also killed alongside him, though I don't think he was, he doesn't seem to have been a target, but it was like a, a plus for the Americans because they also wanted him dead. I mean, he was a big figure too. And of course, that's one of the, the main reason, on top of killing Soleimani, that Iraqis were, I mean, across the board, not just Shias, but Sunnis even were angry. They were pissed that the Americans dared to kill such a high level and revered like military war hero. Um, in Iraq, the way they killed him, I mean, it was, uh, it was, it's just really striking because the PMF was the reason Iraq didn't fall as well. Um, and the U.S. Absolutely. has been killing he, them. He, he is the equivalent of, of General Soleimani in Iraq. Without mm -hmm. him, Iraq would have fallen too. It's these two men that led the fight against ISIS in Iraq. And I, I although I think it's interesting, um, I don't know if this is true. You can confirm or you can confirm it for me or not. But I had heard that a few years ago, Soleimani had cried because he hadn't been martyred yet. He didn't want to die old and sick. Is that true? Yes, he ha he has said that in the past that he he did not he he wanted to go and meet all his because he's been you know the Iran Iraq war. Mm -hmm. He was he was a war hero then. He survived the eight years. He survived chemical weapons that had been provided to Saddam Hussein by the United States and the Europeans uh, as well. But, and, you know, in Syria, he lost comrades. In Iraq, he lost comrades, Iraqi comrades, Iranian, Lebanese, Afghani, Syrian, you know, it's, it's so, yes, I, he, 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 did, he, he did feel that way. But the, the most important thing about him, in my opinion, for an American to recognize is, and the and Europeans in particular, is that if if General Soleimani had not succeeded, Europe would not be safe today. Mm. Yeah, 
That's a good point. That's, That's a very good point. point. Europe would, would have been eventually flooded by ISIS uh, had ISIS actually collapsed the region. That's a really, really important point to make. The reason I brought up that that comment by him is, I guess I wanted to make the point that um, the, the this this behavior, this this action by the Americans demonstrates how stupid they are, um, because by killing him, they actually didn't accomplish anything uh, at all. If in fact they turned him into the martyr that he deserves to be across the region. Um, and I've never, I, you, you can dis disagree with me if you want, but I, it seems to me the resistance axis of the Middle East has never been more united. Yes, exactly. He's, he's, I mean, the, the funeral ceremony in Tehran was between five to seven million, which is unheard of. And, uh, you know, the, the, they've united the Iranian population. They've created a, a contempt for the U.S. government in Iran that I haven't seen uh, for, I don't know when, ever maybe. And also, the same thing is true in Iraq. The Americans, for, for, for two, three, four months now, along with the Saudis and the Emiratis, were destabilizing Iraq. And they're, But what they did here, and they were claiming that Iraqis hate Iran, and they hate the popular mobilization force, and they hate Bassem Soleimani, and, and so on. But when he was murdered, we saw huge funeral processions in Qazimain, near Baghdad, in in Karbala and Nejaf, which compared to those anti-Iranian protests that the Americans have been promoting day and night and, you know, like 100 people, 200 people, 300 <laughs> people there, like these were each were in their hundreds of thousands at least. Yeah. And they were infinitely bigger. So they showed not only did these people not dislike him, but actually they were carrying his body, you know, which was covered in the Iranian flag among a sea of mourners. But also the contempt for the United States for what you were just earlier saying, the murder of, of Ghansim Soleimani, and, but also Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, the Iraqi commander, and their, and their, their, you know, their, uh, their people, their, their men, their soldiers, their, those who work with them. Each of them had four, three, four people uh, uh, murdered alongside them. So the Iraqis see this as an active war against their country. Uh, uh, the, U, the U.S. government kills with impunity, their their judge, jury, prosecutioner. When the prime minister prime minister of Iraq says, "Don't do, don't bomb my soldiers," they do. When he says, "Give the provide me with the intelligence showing that that group killed the American contractor," they wouldn't. It is just total arrogance, and it's obviously, you know, the, I, they don't have the intelligence. That's why they won't give it. But the 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 arrogance of the U.S. government is one major reason why they're so despised. And I think that the Americans simply will not be able to stay in Iraq because the Iraqi resistance today is much stronger than it was during the uh, time when the United States had almost 200,000 troops there, where, you know, there was, a you know, people with guns fighting back. But now you have, what, 10, 15,000 Americans and you have 300,000 Iraqis who, who are battle-hardened who are organized. I mean, there's no way that the Americans can uh, forcefully stay in Iraq. Well, I, I just wanted to specifically have you go back to, there's just so much propaganda out there in our U.S. media, and Rania and I have talked about it, but I wanted to go back to Syria because you know, we have people like Bill Rivers, who was this uh, speechwriter for James Mattis. Uh, he had a column that NBCNews.com 
ran. And, uh, you know, one of the things he says about Soleimani is that uh, he was involved in planning the infamous campaign to retake the city of Aleppo from Syrian rebels in 2016. That siege redefined carnage in the modern era, while the civil war overall sent thousands of refugees fleeing to Europe. And I just find it so insane to describe it that way. And I was hoping uh, you could provide some context for that particular event in 2016. Well, um, first of all, I was in Aleppo uh, when uh, East Aleppo was finally liberated from these extremists. First of all, Aleppo was never in their hands. West Aleppo was in the hands of the Syrian Arab army and Eastern Aleppo was in the hands of Al-Qaeda and uh, other affiliates, you know, uh, Takfiri uh, extremists, Wahhabi groups. And on the day that it was liberated, yes, the Russians were bombing it because these militants were in the city. And uh, when they took the city, I, I saw, I went to the camps where people were being, you know, taken care of. Uh, the Iranian armed forces, they had uh, kitchens there providing uh, 60, I don't remember now exactly, something like 60,000 meals three times a day for the refugees, for those who were streaming out of the areas controlled by ISIS. And the people who I spoke to, maybe a couple of dozen, uh, were all terrified of these extremists. They did not see them as freedom fighters. And when I went into the city, the part of the city that was held by them, you know, you saw the bases controlled by Al-Qaeda, you know, the Nusra Front and, and, and others, the black flags and, and so on. And one of the buildings that was very right, almost right beside the uh, I, uh, 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 a Nusra Front building, the Al-Qaeda building, was the White Helmets building. But what I want to say is also that right when... Um, uh, the Iraqi city uh, was um, liberated in the uh, because after uh, Aleppo, uh, East Aleppo was taken uh, in in Iraq, you had the fight to push uh, ISIS out of the north, and the key city in the north was Mosul. So I was taken to Mosul when it was liberated too. I, I when I went on RT that same day, and I also went on RT ironically, in right after going to um, Aleppo. But when I went to Mosul in Iraq, the damage done by American bombing was almost identical to what I saw in in, in East Aleppo. So when the Americans bomb, for whatever reason. It's benign, but if the Russians do the same thing, it's you know monstrous. And the worst city of them all is the one that the Americans brought to the ground. Um, I can't forget. I can't remember the name. Raqqa, Raqqa, right? Wasn't Raqqa the worst? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. It was Raqqa. It was Raqqa. Yeah. I was at a conference in in Seoul. And a woman officer uh, from the U.S. Army, she was there as well. And then she was speaking about, she, she said like in one part of her speech that, you know, she'd just come from Raqqa. And uh, then later on, she spoke about how the, the Russians destroyed Aleppo. 
I probably have her name because it was a conference. I mean, her name was on the list. And then after she finished speaking, I said, look, you, you, you're saying that the Russians did this and that, but which is worse, Raqqa or Aleppo? Raqqa was leveled to the ground. And she says, I accept that. <laughs> that so, when they, when know, they accept, but when they accept that, I've had those conversations too, but they'll always make the, the point that, yeah, but it was ISIS that was there not revolutionaries and you're like yeah. it's it's insane I mean, but, it's delusional it's delusional well anyway. you know first of all in aleppo um it, you know there was uh, obviously and Raqqa, there was isis but in um in idlib and in um uh, sorry in 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 um, aleppo it's al-qaeda right but but al-qaeda is the root of ISIS. They're ISIS the same. was they're the same. Yeah, they're the same. <laughs> I mean, ISIS was Islamic State of Iraq first. Right. They created Al-Qaeda in Syria called the Nusra Front to do the fighting in Syria. And then at one point, Abu Bakr Baghdadi declared the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria and said that the Nusra Front is now a part of us. But the Nusra Front didn't want to be a part of them. And that's where their division began. And Al-Qaeda's central command in Afghanistan said, you know, we, you're both fighters for, you know, the cause. The cause. But, but, you know, you stay, you know, Islamic State of Iraq, you, you take care of Iraq. And Nusra, you take care of Syria. ISIS didn't accept that. And they broke away from Al-Qaeda, said that you've been corrupted. And they became... ISIS and you know the two sides began killing each other, but the, ideologically they have the same roots. Exactly. No difference between the two. And it's so interesting to go back and like talk about all this very recent history because it's all been scrubbed. Like it's all been scrubbed when we talk about who the U.S. just killed. There was you know what they did in this fight against uh, the Middle East equivalent of of Nazis. Like it's all just like washed out of the entire picture. Um, and it's just really disgusting because it's not something that happened 20 years ago. It's something that happened three years ago, four years ago. Like it wasn't that long ago. And in fact, you know, one thing that I found, uh, one thing I found really interesting too is this talking point, since we're on the subject of propaganda, um, is this really this fabricated number of Soleimani's responsible for the death of 600 American soldiers. I mean, it's aside from the fact that it's soldiers who were occupying and invading Iraq, um, this was actually a number that was fabricated and made up by Dick Cheney during the Bush administration in an effort to build the case for a future war on Iran. And now it's being repeated by Democrats. Um, yeah. And, and, and like, and without question, without question. Iraqi's agency. I mean, yeah. Americans occupied Iraq. The Iraqis fought against the Americans to get them kicked out. And it's as simple as that. It's I mean, war. To, to, <laughs> I mean, if the Americans are that weak that they have occupied a country and the people love them there, <laughs> and uh, this neighboring country is causing trouble, and because of that neighboring country that the people in, in Iraq hate too, that the Americans have to leave, then that shows that Americans are not a superpower. Right. But, in, but what I was... Push the Americans out of the country. It's the Iraqi people that wanted the American armed forces to leave. It's obvious. Well, but they do it now, too. They continue to do this when they... They continue to do this now when they just consistently refer to anything the PMF does as an Iranian maneuver. 
exactly. as, opposed, as, as if the PMF act, they do it with all these groups across the Middle East, like Hezbollah exactly. has no agency. They're all proxies. Right. So but, these so-called proxies, they're the ones who gave up their lives in this war against ISIS. They're the ones who saved their country, these so-called proxies. Yet the Americans are saying that they are not patriotic or they have no uh, feelings for their own country, yet they're the ones who did the fighting and they're the ones that defeated ISIS. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But, you know, in this whole conversation that was happening in the American media, I was surprised to learn. Not surprised, but I hadn't known this before. I didn't realize that Qasem Soleimani, after 9-11, initially had, had cooperated with the Americans to help them locate the Taliban. Um, I did not know that. And uh, that, for some reason, was actually allowed into the media here. Uh, that that he did that up until he and up until Iran started being called a part of the axis of evil by the Bush administration. Um, so it was just like an interesting history. Like the it's like the U.S. It just it gets this pattern of the U.S. actually, you know, supporting what you can call what what goes by the definition of terrorism. The U.S. actually supporting terrorists. These sort of like Sunni extremists, basically. Al whether it's Al Qaeda, whether it's the Mujahideen in, in Afghanistan. And then it comes back to bite the U.S. in the ass, and then they have to turn and prioritize the extremists that they formerly helped. Um, but then whenever they're done with that campaign, they go back to their priority, which is actually being anti-Iran every single and, time. And we always have to remember that the Sunnis are the biggest victims of ISIS and Al-Qaeda sure. that the Americans and the Saudis and others created in the first place. But one, actually, you're right, with regards to the Taliban, uh, the Iranians... Uh, wants to get rid of them. And one of the people who actually negotiated with the Iranians was uh, Hillary Mann Leverett. She worked in the U.S. National Security Council. She was the head of the Persian Gulf region. And she wrote a book later on with her husband, uh, Flint Leverett, called Going to Iran. And she's a good person to invite on your show at some point because she negotiated with the Iranians over Afghanistan and what to do and how to you know, uh, defeat the Taliban. But again, when the Americans went into Afghanistan, they became an occupier instead of a, a liberator as usual. And then they got um, over ambitious again, went into Iraq and, uh, and then everyone knows, you know, the rest. <laughs> what happened next? It's, it's Iran's fault. Everything is Iran's fault. Well, actually, I'm glad that you said that because it lets us segue into what I, uh, something I do want to talk about, which is the actual history of U.S. aggression in Iran, you know, when we hear about Iran-U.S. relations, it always starts in 1979 um, and never before that. But even then, we still don't hear about the awful things that the U.S. did, uh, whether it's, you know, helping Iraq in the Iraq-Iran war, uh, whether it's downing an Iranian airliner, uh, having these crippling sanctions on Iran for decades, um, killing giving nuclear scientists, yeah, weapons. giving some dumb chemical weapons, killing Iranian nuclear scientists. Um, funding overthrowing groups the in the region in 1953. Right. So actually, go ahead and give us people. give us a time. Well, give us. I'd like you to actually kind of give us a give us a brief timeline, and then also I'd like to hear about your personal experience with with this sort of aggression that Iran had to deal with because you were personally impacted by it, and it helped yeah. shape your life. I mean, very very briefly, uh, it's first the 1953 coup. Uh, where they threw the Iranian, overthrew the Iranian national government. Then they supported the Shah, helped create his secret police. Uh, 
which killed thousands of people over the years. Then during the revolution, when the Shah was gunning people down on the streets in the in the many thousands with with army soldiers using uh, uh, heavy weaponry. Uh, Carter, Jimmy Carter, who is like the most benign of U.S. presidents, called the Shah and said, we support you completely, especially right after Black Friday, which was perhaps the worst day in the, in the, uh, of the, all the massacres. And then after the revolution, the Americans gave the Shah refuge. He went to the United States. And that's why the Iranian students took the embassy, because the Shah was like our Osama bin Laden. He was like our, you know, he was our... Uh, monster and the Americans gave him refuge. So Iranian student, students took the U.S. embassy, but also they were afraid that this was going to be a repeat of history because before the Americans installed the Shah in 1953, and the Iranians thought that they were going to give him a refuge and then carry out another coup in Iran. And the Americans were working to carry out a coup because when they took the embassy, they took out documents. Uh, back then, back then it wasn't as you know well protected as U.S. embassies are today, but they they found documents where the Americans were plotting against the government. And then, of course, it was supporting Saddam Hussein in his invasion, giving him chemical weapons. And, um, and this story goes on supporting Saudi Arabia in creating extremist groups like the Taliban, which was a, a threat to Iran. And uh, and so, you know, the Iran American antagonism just goes on and on until today where they're waging economic warfare. But uh, I think you're probably alluding to my own personal experience. I was a volunteer in the uh, in the war when Saddam invaded Iran. I was 16 when I first went as a volunteer and um, I survived two chemical weapons attacks during that war. I was injured. I, I was shot. I, I have shrapnel wounds. But the, the main issue was that um, I survived two chemical weapons attacks, and those chemical weapons were provided by the so-called, uh, you know, civilized world. And the irony, of course, is that the Americans and the Europeans are outraged, and they keep bombing Syria every time they uh, there is a chemical attack or an alleged chemical attack in Syria, and they call the Syrians monsters. But a, they gave, you know, huge amounts of chemical weapons to Iraq, incomparable to what was used in Syria. And B, as we all are now discovering the chemical attacks in Syria, as we knew all along, were false flag operations by the extremists in order to have the Americans carry out these airstrikes or missile strikes. And we would we were saying weeks before the last two chemical attacks in particular that, the, that these attacks are going to take place. We were warning everyone that you know these attacks are going to take place. And then they would, and then the Western media would say, oh, it's outrageous, and then the Americans would bomb, and then the media would be proud of Trump, even though they hate him. But uh, that's how the world works today. Mohammed, uh, before we wrap, would it be uh, would you be able to talk about the impact of the sanctions on Iran? I think it's really crucial for us to hit this point um, before concluding the interview. Uh, we heard in Trump's speech that he's going to have additional punishing economic sanctions for Iran. This is economic warfare, but all too often in the Western world, it's not taken to be an act of war. Um, I think it's important to have you speak to what's potentially going to happen as the escalate against Iran? Well, the problem really in Western countries is that because they see themselves as exceptional, these regimes in the media, when they carry out war crimes, these are not crimes, these are mistakes. So if they destroy Libya, they say, yes, it was a mistake. 
or if they invade and destroy Iraq, they say, yeah, it was a mistake. But if any other country did one, you know, something much more small, much smaller than that, there would be outrage across the board. Look how evil they are. But, you know, look how evil this regime is or look how evil that regime is. But getting back to the point you were making, the, the Americans are trying to make Iranians collectively suffer as much as possible. They are trying to prevent Iran from importing medicine. They're trying to, if they try to force countries that export food to food stuff like grains and, and other things, not to, not to allow the ships to leave port. Uh, they do the most outrageous things and they gloat about it when they succeed. So, you know, cancer patients have died. Many young children who have very, you know, complex medical and dangerous medical complications, they die. And, uh, you know, the U.S. government is very proud of it itself. What can I say? <laughs> it's as ugly as it gets. It's like the only thing you can, it's like almost like this, it's almost like a big joke because it's so it's dark. Monstrous. Yes, yeah. it's, it's monstrous, but you know, the, so the Western media, it's, it's as if, you know, yeah, it's, that's, it's all fine. Why? I know you, they're oh, the go good guys and we're the bad guys, so it's okay. Always. Well, I actually have one last thing I'd like to ask you about, um, just very quickly. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you haven't seen Iranians uh, as angry at the U.S. as they are now, maybe ever. What is it like? What is the the atmosphere there right now? Um, are, is everybody constantly talking about this, or are people just kind of moving on with their lives? Um, and how do you think this is going to shape everything moving forward? Well, people do live their lives, but right. there's a lot of talk about. General Soleimani, he is very popular. I mean, the I think even even the Western media that always downplays, you know, anything that's positive about Iran or anything that goes against their narrative, even they were saying that millions. Like I, I was on the BBC and when I before I went on air, they were saying millions took part in the in the commemoration in Tehran, so they couldn't hide it. But uh, the Iranians want the Americans out of Iraq and they want the Americans out of the region. And I think that the Iraqis will ultimately force the Americans to leave. And the Americans are increasingly relying on two very vulnerable dictatorships, the Saudi regime and the Emirati regime that are spending huge amounts of money in a failed war in Yemen. And these two regimes are very vulnerable if they want to, you know, if, 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 they, if there's any conflict with Iran, these two regimes will not survive. All right. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Mohammed, for coming on and for giving us so much of your time. You've been all over the place. And I, I do want to tell you one thing. I'm always so impressed watching you when you're up against somebody who disagrees with you. You are the calmest person. And it's like so satisfying to watch because you just like have this ability to like crush somebody who's debating you without even raising your voice. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. Well, it's incredible. Well, I hope, hopefully, uh, I, I mean, I, and I know you and Kevin and everyone else, you're all doing as much as you can to raise issues that people are, are ignoring. And your stuff is really uh, excellent. The clips that you make, I, I've seen many of them. They're oh, fantastic. <laughs> and congratulations. And we all have to do what we have to do mm -hmm. and just for better days ahead for everyone. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And hopefully in the future, we can have you on again to talk about something more positive.
Um, hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a distant future, but we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But thank you so, so, so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for listening to the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast. To those of you who are our monthly supporters, Thank you very much for your continued support and for being with us for the start of a seventh season of our show. To those of you who stumbled upon this interview and enjoyed hearing from Mohammed and would like to hear more interviews, we highly encourage you to go to patreon.com slash unauthorizeddisclosure and become a patron. There you'll be able to get early access to each of our episodes uh, hear interviews before most listeners, and you'll also be able to get access to bonus discussions, bonus content that we post each week. We did post bonus discussion for this past week, so you'll be able to find it there if you become a patron. Again, go to patreon.com slash unauthorized disclosure, support the show, help keep us going, and we'll continue to produce interviews like the one we just did here with Mohammed. Thank you, and have a good rest of your week.